Thank you, Jonathan. We are this morning going to be finishing a series that we've been working through all fall in the life of David from the books of First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. So uh, next week we start a series that we will do throughout Advent. We have an Advent series every week, a preaching series. So today we're going to finish the series up, and we're going to do it by going back into the middle of the story to Second Samuel chapter 7. So if you have a Bible and you want to read along, you can. We're going to read the better part of the chapter, verses 1 through 22, and then skip down to, chapter, to verse 27 and read through verse 29. If you, don't, you can follow, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along uh, for, it, for it's printed for you there in the worship folder. It will also be on the screen behind me. Uh, let's read together, okay, from first, I mean, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 7 about the covenant that God makes with David. Okay, let's read. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house? Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. He will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all of these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come and This is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. And there is no no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. For you, O Lord of hosts, The God of Israel have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. 
And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. The commentators and scholars all agree that this is probably the most, or at least one of the most important chapters in all of the books of history in the Old Testament scriptures. So, in a way, in order to understand the rest of the Old Testament, and I would say especially the prophets, in order to understand the story the Old Testament is telling, moving towards the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah in the New Testament, you have to understand what God's doing here for David in 2 Samuel 7. And when the prophets talk about the Messiah who is to come, this son of David, this king who would put down evil and finally heal the world, they were commenting on and applying this passage, 2 Samuel 7. And so this is a big deal this morning to look at this. But in the same way, when the New Testament writers talk about Jesus, they call him the son of David. Uh, And in fact, for the next four weeks, we're going to look at our Advent series, we're going to look there four times in the Gospels where an angel comes to visit uh, the people that are involved in the whole birth of Jesus, whether it be Mary or Joseph or uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, or the shepherds on the hillside. Four times angels come and visit all of these different people that are involved in this event. And all four times when the angels come to visit, in the message they give to those people, they refer to the birth of this one, they refer it back to the story of King David. And so what we are to understand about Jesus and his ultimate significance and how all of these are ultimately fulfilled in him in order to understand all that we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks and all that the New Testament reveals to be true of who Jesus is and what he came to do, you have to understand what God promises here in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, So we've got a lot to talk about this morning, and we need to get going quickly. I hate to inform you, this has really evolved as as it's gone along this week, and so your outline on the back of the page is absolutely useless to you this morning. I hate it when that happens. So it's going to be, if you rely on that, it's going to be hard. But here's what I want to do. I want to do something like this, and I don't even really have categories to, because we're just going to have to get into the middle of it and talk about it a little bit. But here are the three things. There are really three things that I want, to, I want you to see about what this passage teaches us about Jesus. And the first is I want you to see how it teaches us a little bit about the scope of Jesus' work, what he came to do, what ultimately it is that he came into the world to accomplish. We learn about that here in this chapter Uh, Secondly, I I want you to see how this passage teaches us about the way Jesus, the way the gospel of Jesus works. In other words, how the God of the Bible relates to us in a completely different way than any other God the world has ever known. And and the the really kind of the catch here is David's going to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord says, no, you're not going to build a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. David, you're not going to work for me, I'm going to work for you. And that's really the teaching that we're going to have to kind of get into. But if that's true, then the third thing is, is if... If really what it means to be a Christian is not you're working for God, but he's working for you, then thirdly, how does that affect the way we work? Uh, And those are the three things. Okay, so first, let's start with the scope, then, of the work of Jesus as um, as we come to see it here, okay? We get a glimpse of what God is really up to in the world in this chapter. God makes a covenant with David. That's what's happening here. God is entering into covenant relationship with David, making promises to David, uh, promising to bless him and to establish his kingdom forever and to um, you know, show great favor to the descendants after him. And this isn't the first time this has happened in the Bible. You've got to think about the way God comes to Noah 
in Genesis chapter 9, and he makes a covenant with Noah. He comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and he makes a covenant with this man Abraham. He comes to the people of Israel in Exodus 19 and 20, and he makes a covenant with them as a people. So throughout the story the Old Testament is telling, God continues to move in, and he binds himself to uh, first Noah, then Abraham, then the people of God under Moses, and then here he binds himself to David, and that's important. It's important to see that link to the rest of the Bible. And so God's making a covenant here with David. And it is an eschatological covenant. Now that's a big word. So what do I mean? And you see that there. I think that's point two. So really point one, point one is in your outline, point two is really point one. Okay, so forgive me. That's just how it works. What do I mean though? What do I mean that it is an eschatological covenant? The Greek word, the eschaton, refers to the final culmination of human history, what's coming at the end, what all of human history is about, where it's ultimately headed. That's what that Greek word means. So theologians pick it up and talk about eschatological things because we like to feel important by the big words we say. So when I say this is an eschatological covenant, what I mean is is that that what God promises here has reference to more than just the historical cultural events of David's lifetime or even to events that are 100 years or so after him. What God promises here has reference to all of human history. It has reference to what God is ultimately doing throughout human history to bring about his purposes on the earth. And it also, it means that what God is promising here to David has reference to more than just a temporary earthly kingdom. Because if you look there three times, verse 13 and verse 16, God refers to and promises David an eternal kingdom. That the throne of David will be established forever, verse 13. That David's house will be made sure forever before me, God says in verse 16. And again, that his throne will be established forever. And so what God is doing has reference to more than just what's going to happen in David's lifetime or what's going to happen, you know, to his son Solomon or to the, the, you know, the the next hundred years of his descendants. But it has ultimate significance to all of human history. It's an eschatological covenant. The means of what God is doing here in making this covenant with David can only be understood by the plot line of the Bible. And what I mean by that is that to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand that the Bible is telling a story. A particular story about the world we live in, about why things are the way that they are, and about where we're headed. So the story goes something like this. God created the world to be a paradise. That's Genesis chapter 1, right? He created the world to be a paradise. But when we turned from him, everything blew apart. Everything was ruined. And that's why now we have sickness, and we have death, and we have disease, and uh, we have unhappiness in our hearts, uh, you know, and we are, we are unfulfilled. And so we look to Florida State football games to fill us up, and then they lose in the last moment, and you just are depressed and can't sleep. That may have happened to some of you last night. I personally would have no experience with that sort of thing. But something's gone very wrong. Something's gone very, very, very wrong. There's unhappiness in our hearts, and the world is full of war and natural disasters and disease and death, and that's Genesis chapter 3. But beginning in Genesis chapter 4, all the way to Revelation 22, what's happening is God is promising throughout the Old Testament that he's going to do a work of complete restoration. He's going to come, and he's going to heal the world, and he's going to heal our hearts. 
And this idea is developed throughout the Old Testament in the form of a series of covenants God makes. I refer to them first with Noah, wherein Noah God comes and he reconstitutes Noah as the new humanity. And he says, just like I made Adam in the image of God, so now you're made in the image of God. And just like I told Adam to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it, so now the commandment is given to you that you would be fruitful, Noah, and fill the earth and subdue it. And so God reconstitutes Noah as this new humanity. And then in a few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 15, he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, it's through you. I've chosen you and your family who is going to become a mighty nation. And it's through this nation of people that I'm going to bring about my purposes on the earth. It's, I'm, going to, I'm going to renew the world. I'm going to heal the world through you and through the people that come from you. And then here, And David, what we see is this idea continues to develop throughout the Old Testament and ultimately this hope of what God is going to do to to come to rescue his people comes from this passage for the rest of the New Testament. Most of the the, the writers and the prophets and all the people who come and begin to speak about these things, what they do is they pick up on the idea of what God's doing here and they say, this ultimate work of restoration and healing that God is going to do, he's going to do it through the king, the son of David who's promised here. He says there's a descendant that's going to come, and I'm going to give him an eternal kingdom. And if you lay that on top of everything the Bible's been saying to this point, and then everything that the prophets speak back into this particular text, you begin to see that the hope begins to emerge in Israel, that there's going to become a king one day, and it is through that king that God is going to bring righteousness and justice and peace to the earth, and he's going to fulfill his purposes in the world through the work of this great king that's going to come. And so you get verses. If you look at the front of your worship folder, where there's that picture of David and Goliath, and just under the picture you see this verse from Jeremiah 23. So this is Jeremiah the prophet speaking back into what God is doing in this covenant he's making here with, with, with um, David and, and speaking about the promise of the son of David that's going to come. And so he says, Behold, the days are coming. This is being written hundreds of years later declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. You, should, there's parallel, you see the parallel language. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. And so the prophets pick up this idea. They see the connection that is so very clearly being made here between the covenant God makes with David and the covenant he's already made with Abraham, that he's going to heal the world through this people and ultimately through the king that's going to arise out of this people. And it's that king's work. Through that king's work, God's going to come and he's going to restore and make all things new. And so you get passages like Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders. We, we love to quote this at, at Christmas, right? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he shall sit to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Over and over again the prophets speak of what this king is going to do, this son of David who is going to come. He is not just going to make Israel great in the eyes of the nation. He is going to renew the whole earth. And so the New Testament writers see in Jesus' ministry the fulfillment of all this prophetic language. And so they start to call Jesus the son of David. But he's also the son of God. 
to say that they understood him to be more than just an earthly king with an earthly throne, this son of David would be, here in verse 14, also the son of God who would sit upon the throne of the universe and bring about God's purposes on the earth. And that's the scope of Jesus' work. But that's not the main part of what I want to talk about this morning. God makes a covenant with David, and it's an eschatological covenant. The scope of Jesus' work. But secondly, I want you to see, and this is probably even just as important, that this is not only an eschatological covenant, but it's also a gracious covenant. And the fact that it's a gracious covenant teaches us the way that the gospel works or how the God of the Bible is different from every other God the world has ever known. Okay, a typical covenant would go something like this. It would include promises by both parties, but not, you know, so this person, and they were two people entering into a relationship with one another or entering into a business, you know, relationship with one another, and both parties would make vows and commitments to the other person. I mean, can you imagine a marriage ceremony where the wife took vows to the husband, but the husband didn't take vows to the wife? And yet here, unlike every other covenant, most covenants, both parties took vows, made promises, not this one. Here, the emphasis is entirely on what God has done and will continue to do for David. And so in verses 1 through 17, if you go back and read that later, God is the first person subject of 23 verbs. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I took you from the pasture. I made you king. You know, I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all of your enemies from before you. I will make your name great. I will give you rest. I will give you a son. I will establish your king. All of the emphasis is on the Lord and what the Lord has done and what the Lord will do for David and not what David has done or will do for the Lord. It's a gracious covenant. So the whole scene here is occasioned by David's desire to build a house for God. Look verse 2. God has blessed David. He's given him victory over his enemies. David's settled into the city of Jerusalem, which is now his capital, and out of gratitude, he wants to do something for, this, for God who has done so much for him. He is, we're told there, verse 2, living in a house of cedar, which is kind of code in the Bible for cedar, very expensive. Uh, he's living very luxuriously. He, God has blessed him so much so that he could build it. He had enough money to buy enough cedar to build a house of cedar for himself. So he's living very lavishly. He looks and he says, you know, I have a house of cedar. God is still living in a tent, so I need to build God a house. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, Nathan, the prophet, thinks so. And by the way, pastors like myself and Nathan are weak to people who say, you know, I just inherited a million dollars and I like to donate 150000 to the church's work. Do whatever you find your hand to do, the Lord is with you. Right? <laughs> Nathan says, sounds great to me, amen, let's do it. But then God says, no. Why does God refuse David's offer to build him a house? What's revealed here is it's because he's not like all the other gods of the peoples. And really, he gives David two reasons for his no. There's two reasons, really. And the first is what I would call the incarnational principle. The Lord says, 2 Samuel 7, 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but have been moving about in the tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved, he says, with all the people, did I ever speak a word saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God doesn't want a house. In other words, the Lord says, I am the kind of God who lives with my people. When my people live in tents, I live in tent. What my people experience, I experience. And David's begun to settle down here, and he's begun to experience rest, but for the rest of the nation, it's not yet, you know, it's not completely played itself out yet, 
the rest of the nation is not settled down yet. And God says, until all of my people have houses of their own, I will not have a house for myself. I refuse to live like a king when my people are still in distress. He's the kind of God who enters into the struggles of his people and lives with them there. It's just amazing. But the second, second reason God gives David for, for saying no is what I would call the grace principle. And by that I mean God says to David, David, you're not going to do great things for me. You're only going to do great things through me. You know, I've brought you to where you are. You were a shepherd and I brought you out and I made you king All that you have, you only have because I gave it to you. You, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. It was very common in the ancient Near Eastern societies that when a king had achieved military success over his enemies and settled into his capital city, the the custom of the day would be he would then build a huge temple to whoever his God was, the God that he served. And typically, then the God would come and say, since you've honored me by building this temple to me, now I will honor you, and I will make you live long and prosperous, and you will dwell in this city for generations to come. And so the pattern in the ancient societies was just this. It was the king who had been granted military victory would build a house to his God, and then the God would promise to bless and prosper the king. So this is what David's doing. He's following culture, you know, the culture expectation, and God says, no. No, I'm not like the other gods. <laughs> In other words, what God is doing is challenging the religious impulse of the people of that day, and ours too, by the way, because all of the religions of the world work on this principle. Uh, they, they, they say something like this, you build God a house and he will bless you. Right? Even religious people within the church today default to this way of thinking. Live for God, follow the rules, obey his commands, do something great for him, be a good person, and then at the end of your striving... Then God will be pleased with you and will bless you. Religion says you do something for God, he will bless you. But what the God of the Bible is saying here is, I am a God of sheer grace. David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Eugene Peterson, who wrote a commentary on this passage that I think really gets to the heart of a lot of what is going on here. I'm going to quote him quite a bit in the next few minutes. But he says this about what's happening here between David and the Lord. He says, There are times when our grand human plans to do something for God are seen after a night of prayer to be a huge human distraction from what God is doing for us. God's word to David through Nathan was essentially this, The kingdom that I'm shaping here isn't what you do for me, but what I do through you. I'm doing the building here. Not you. I'm not going to let you confuse things by launching a building operation of your own. If I let you fill Jerusalem with the sounds and sights of your building project, carpenters, hammers, and masons, chisels, and teamsters shouts, before long, everyone will be caught up in what you are doing and not attentive to what I am doing. If there's any building to be done, I'm doing it. You're here to give visibility and representation to what I'm doing, not to call attention to what you're doing. And see, the gospel application, the gospel principle of this passage then is, What makes you a Christian is not what you do for God. What makes you a Christian is what God has done for you in Christ. And what he's doing through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus ultimately fulfilled the incarnational principle. And this is what we celebrate during Christmas. We are flesh and blood, and because God is a God who dwells with his people, he put on flesh and blood in Jesus to share in our weakness, to taste our infirmity, to be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. 
in order to save us through his life, death, and resurrection. We are encased in this body, and so God took on a body in order to, as the Apostle John says, dwell among us. But Jesus is also the fulfillment of the grace principle. Because, you see, every other religion says you give God a good record, then God owes you a blessing. But Christianity is completely different. Christianity says God, through Jesus, gives you a perfect record, and then you owe him your life. I mean, Jesus came, and he lived the life that we should have lived. And the theologians call this the active obedience of Christ. In other words, he obeyed every command of God perfectly. He truly loved the Father with his whole heart and mind and soul and strength. And he truly loved others more than he loved himself. But we're told he also died the death. He not only lived the life we should have lived, he died the death that we should have died. And the theologians call that his passive obedience. He stood in for us. He suffered the wrath of God in our place that was due us because of our sins. He willingly laid down his life and submitted himself to the cross. And this idea of active and passive obedience just means this. Jesus did 100% of the work. Right? All of it. And on the cross, as his hands were hung out to his sides, one of his last words was, it is finished. I've done it. I've accomplished the work. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life. That's what he said. And so what we're learning here is this idea God says to David, David, no, this, this whole arrangement, this relationship you have with me, it's not about what you can do for me. It's all about what I'm doing for you. And if that's true... If what really matters is what God is doing for us and through us and not what we're doing for him, does that mean there's nothing for us to do? (laughs) Of course not. So we have to ask, what does it mean for how we go about our work in light of what we learn here about God's working for us? And it means we go about our work in a certain way. That whatever the work is that is before you, whether it's being a student, whether it's mothering young children or managing people at your job, or dreaming of taking the gospel to the city of Winter Haven, whatever it might be, there are implications here, and this is where we're going to finish, for how you go about doing the work in light of God saying to David, I'm, this is about me working for you, it's not about you working for me. And I want you to see how this all comes to a head in verse 18, where, what David does in response to God's word to him. We're told in verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. The chapter starts with David with all these grandiose building plans of all the great things he's going to do for God. 23 times God tells him, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And at the end, all David can do is go in and sit down in front of him. Get still. And this is what Eugene Peterson has to say about what David does here, and I think this is really great. He says, this may be the single most critical act David ever did. The action that put him out of action. More critical than killing Goliath, more critical than honoring Saul as enemy, as God's anointed, more critical than bringing the ark to Jerusalem. More critical because what David does now in response to Nathan's pastoral prophetic counsel will either qualify or disqualify him from his king work for which he has been anointed, trained, preserved, and empowered. And then he makes this statement, which just destroys me in many ways, but I find incredibly helpful. He says, Eugene Peterson, what we don't do for God is often far more critical than what we, in fact, do. He says, most Christians are characteristically much afraid of doing too little for God, let alone nothing. But there are moments far more frequent than we suppose when doing nothing is precisely the gospel thing to do. 
what does that mean? If you pay careful attention to the membership vows that we take, you will notice that in vow number two, we ask or we define true faith in Jesus Christ by describing it as resting. Have you noticed that? We ask, here it is, do you humbly or do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners and do you now receive and rest upon him alone for salvation? Do you rest? In other words, do you know that all the work that needs to be done for your salvation has already been done by him? Not by you, by him. Have you stopped working for your salvation? Because until you do, you're not a Christian. Are you resting in the work of Christ for you? That's what we're getting at there, and that's what you see happening in David's heart and life here. And resting doesn't mean not doing anything. It doesn't mean just becoming kind of passive and, you know, I'm just going to sit around and do nothing. It, It means that in everything you do, All that you do is grounded in these three things, and I'm going to mention them very quickly, and then we're going to be done. These three things. All of your work is really about these three things. First, it's grounded in gospel courage that comes from, number two, deep joy and gratitude in what God has already done for you, which leads to, number three, prayer becoming the work of your life. Let me say it again. What it means to do your work out of the resting that the gospel provides for you means that in everything you do, it is, number one, grounded in gospel courage that comes from, number two, deep joy and gratitude in what God has already done for you and leads to prayer becoming the work of your life. And so if you're resting from your work, if you're resting your work, whatever it is, will always include those three things. You'll be courageous, not anxious. You'll be filled with joy and gratitude, and prayer will be your default. And so if you want a diagnostic to know where you stand in this, there it is. Now, let me just talk about those three things very briefly, and then we're done. First, courage. Look at David's prayer, verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. So God's promise gives David courage. And what's that mean? I think it means that before he was acting out of insecurity and fear. Think about all he was saying. You know, I'm going to do, God, I've got a plan. I've got a building project in mind for how we're going to get you a house. It means in all of that, he was doing all that to try to impress God. He was managing his life by making sure God was happy with him. That's, that was the motivation for all of the work that he was doing. And if you're a workaholic like me, or if you're a spiritual workaholic like me, dig deep enough into your heart, and at the bottom what you'll find is the reason you work so hard is you're afraid. You don't have courage. Because it takes incredible courage to stop working, doesn't it? It takes incredible courage to rest because it means relinquishing control. It means quitting your job, so to speak. It means laying aside all of your plans for how you're going to control your life. And it requires absolute naked faith and trust. It requires, and by that I mean complete confidence that God is for you in Jesus and that he will be faithful to his word. And that the outcome you seek in your life, you cannot accomplish through your own work. He must do the work anyway. So you don't have to build a house for him. He's building one from you. And what Zephaniah 3 that we read a few minutes ago says, is it says when you get a vision of, of just how, I mean, how many of you, how many of you live hearing the song, the Father is singing over you, ringing in your ears. Not me. 
But what Zephaniah says is, is if we could begin to get a glimpse of just how uh, delight, just how crazy about us God is, and just how committed to doing good for us He is, what He says is is that His love would come into our life in such a way that it would quiet our hearts. Our hearts would be quieted by His love. We'd begin to be still, to not have to be constantly going here and there and doing all that, and so there would be courage. But secondly, not only courage, but secondly, at the bottom of a heart that's resting in what God is you know, resting in all their work, all of its work is coming out of this resting. At, at the bottom of it is joy and gratitude for all that God has done. And this is where I think celebrating Thanksgiving this week can be really helpful and of spiritual benefit. John Piper, so not only courage, but also joy and thankfulness. Okay, John Piper has a famous quote in his book, The Pleasures of God, where he says this. He says, God is a mountain spring, not a watering trough. A mountain spring is self-replenishing. It constantly overflows and supplies others, but a watering trough needs to be filled with a pump or a bucket brigade. So if you want to glorify the worth of a watering trough, you work hard to keep it full and useful. But if you want to glorify the worth of a spring, you do it by getting down on your hands and knees and drinking to your heart's satisfaction. Now get ready. Because this is what just blows my life up right here. He says... John Piper, you do not glorify a mountain spring by dutifully hauling water up the path from the river below and dumping it in the spring. The way to please God is not to come to him to get. I mean, excuse me. The way to please God is to come to him to get, not to come to him to give. To drink, not to water. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is the kind of God who will be pleased with the one thing I have to offer, my need. He delights not when we offer him our strength, but when we wait for his. He is the kind of God who delights most deeply, not in making demands, but in meeting needs. Do you believe that? See, what John Piper's trying to teach, I think, and what this passage, I think, is trying to teach, is if you want to glorify God, stop trying to do great things for him and find deep joy and gratitude in what he's done for you. You want to glorify, I mean, this is what people, people, oh man, I didn't even think about this example, but what blows, people love to talk about the tithe uh, and, and apply the tithe legalistically and not be careful, I, come talk to me, don't, my, you know, that doesn't speak to my theology of the tithe. But what I love to do to people is when they want to be very legalistic about 10% and God's got, you take them to Deuteronomy chapter 14 and, and here's what God says in Deuteronomy 14, take your tithe and go buy the best steak and the best wine you can find and I want you to throw a party. Carter likes that. God's saying, use your tithe to celebrate how good I've been to you because when you celebrate my goodness to you, I take more delight in that than I can possibly fathom in anything else. God loves for us to be joyful and to express gratitude through celebration for all that he has done. And so if you want to glorify him, stop trying to do great things for him and find deep joy and gratitude in what he's done for you. That's what it means to rest in whatever your work is. That at the bottom of your heart, there's deep joy and gratitude for what God has done and is doing for you. And so you look at your life like David in 2 Samuel 18 and say, Oh, who am I, O Lord? Who am I? I mean, that's what what I'm going to be praying this week, is that as you gather around the table with your families, that the prayers that would arise out of those table gatherings would be something like, Who am I, O Lord, that you have brought me this far?
And I think it's why Thanksgiving is such a great opportunity because you have to work your heart towards courage and joy through the habit of Thanksgiving or intentionally filling your mind and heart with the record of God's work for you. But then thirdly, because I need to be finished. Thirdly, so courage, how do you know you're resting? There's courage. At the bottom, there's joy and gratitude. You glorify God by finding deep joy and gratitude in what he's done for you. And then thirdly, as you come to understand this prayer will become the work of your life. I know I'm quoting him a lot, but Eugene Peterson says again, when David sits down before the Lord, it was the farthest thing from passivity or resignation. It was prayer. And if you look at the text, in fact, this is what David does. He goes in, he sits down before the Lord, and in in verse 18, he begins to pray. And so when you're resting and not working, then prayer becomes the way you get your work done. And I cannot recommend, if if you, like me, are terrible at prayer, it's one of my uh, sins that I confess to the Lord. It's my besetting sin in many ways. I cannot recommend highly enough the book by my friend Paul Miller called The Praying Life. And in that book, here's what Paul says. He says, prayer is where I do my best work as a husband, dad, worker, and friend. I'm aware of the, the weeds of unbelief in me and the struggles in others' lives. The Holy Spirit puts his finger on issues that only he can solve. I'm actually managing my life through my daily prayer time. It's shaping my heart, my work, my family. In fact, everything that is dear to me through prayer and fellowship with my heavenly father i am doing that because i do not have control over my heart and life or the hearts and lives of those around me but god does every week i write out a to-do list in my little black book that i carry around that ashley makes fun of me for and the number one priority in that in that book in that in my weekly list of things to do every week is community bible reading and prayer and yet when i am pressed for time i consistently choose to set meetings to send emails, to plan, and to, do, to, all, to look at my calendar with fascination and do all of these things instead of prayer. And here's what it means. It means that what I really believe will get the work done is my action, my work, not God's working. So here's what happens. Last Sunday night, Ashley and I stayed up well past midnight talking because I was in such despair. You know, the sermon that day was horrible or whatever, whatever it happened to be at that particular moment. It doesn't really matter. It kind of comes and goes. But... Um, and so Monday morning, when I got to the office, I was just, I could just feel, do you ever have these days? I mean, do any of you, I mean, this will give you insight into my life. Do any of you just wake up with anxiety and worry crushing your chest? Good, I'm the only one. That's very, very encouraging. Thank you for bearing uh, your soul with me. Thank you, thank you. I know you do. I mean, I learned it from you, so I, you got to. That's my dad that says, yes, yes, yes. It is the family legacy, unfortunately. So I came into the office that morning, and I took my journal out, and I wrote, this is what I wrote in my journal. I said, I can feel my weariness when I bump up against a problem for which I have no solution, or the work is so great that it intimidates me, I lose heart. And that's where I am this morning. So think about the church, the needs of my family and friends, my own struggles with sin, just weariness. But why? That's why I keep asking myself, why? And the answer is, this is what I wrote, I'm despairing over my ability to get the work done that is before me to accomplish. Which means that my hope all along has been in my ability to get the work done that is before me to accomplish. I really do believe that I can get it done. Most of the time, anyway. After all, (laughs) don't laugh. After all, I am great. That's what I wrote. After all, I am great.
do believe that. <laughs> I mean, you know, and you do too, by the way, if you didn't know that. Not about me, but about yourself, I mean. Okay? I really do believe that I can get it done most of the time. But more than that, I want to be the one who does it so that people will celebrate me. So what I learned this week, and what was amazing is, is my, I, in two hours I had the sermon written after that. It was just a neat experience for me on Monday. And what I learned is that no prayer is the equivalent of self-sufficiency and pride. No prayer means I'm still trying to build a house for God. I'm still trying to do things for God. All of my focus is on what I'm doing or should be doing or am not doing. But prayer is the sign that grace is beginning to sink in. That it's not about me and what I'm doing for God. It's about what he is doing for me. And that there are problems all the time that I bump up against. But he is the one who possesses all power and all authority in heaven and earth. And so the more I turn to prayer, the more it means that that I know that my life hangs on not the things I'm doing for him, but the things he promises to do for me. See, I'm feeding on his promises and it drives me to prayer. So the work becomes prayer. Not prayer, and then I'm just going to sit back and wait for God. No, but prayer, and then in prayer, moving out into the work he has for me to do. But with confidence, not anxiety. With joy and thankfulness, not grumping and mean. And so as you think about the work you've got to get done this this week, this week, you think about the work that you've got to get done. Are you, let me just ask, are you full of courage? Or are you despairing? Is your heart full of joy and gratitude for what God has done to you up to this point? And what he promises to do for you this week, is prayer the default mechanism of your life, or does it easily get pushed out of your weekly to-do list like it does mine? What does repentance look like for you this morning? Let me ask a second question. How could you leverage this week, this week in particular of celebrating Thanksgiving, how could you leverage this week to cultivate courage through the rehearsal of what God has done, joy through the discipline of giving thanks and prayer so that we might be people who truly begin to bear fruit that glorifies God. So that when the city looks at the work that's being done in this place and through this place, they think of him and they glory in him and not in us because that's what we want, right? For him to be glorified. And I think the saying rings true. He's most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, satisfy our hearts in you. That is what we pray. Uh, On a week where, I, I just prayed already this morning, on a week where we could be so tempted to bow down at the altar of family, to bow down at the altar of, um, the idol of ease and luxury, to overeat and to overspend, overeat on Thursday and overspend on Friday or whatever it might be, Lord Jesus, keep us from the idols of our hearts and establish your reign and your rule in us that we might come to delight in you above all other things, that we might come to live with deep joy and gratitude for all that you've done for us. And that prayer might become the work of our lives so that we might bear fruit that would glorify you. Be glorified in us, in our joy, in our, in our drinking at the fountain of your goodness. Forgive us that we still try to take buckets and form a bucket brigade and try to continue to, to do something that will cause you to look upon us with favor. Help us to see that in Christ you love us and you love us so powerfully that indeed if we were to listen, we would hear your voice singing over us. And so quiet our hearts.
with the sound of your love song. Because only then will we truly be able to accomplish the work you've, you've called us to. Do these things, we pray, that you might be glorified in us. Amen. Amen. Please come back Wednesday and celebrate with us. It will be a very short service, less than an hour. We will have childcare for the younger children. So we invite you to come and, and with us. We're really going to talk about how we can really make Thanksgiving uh, a way of, of being very spir- profiting spiritually. Uh, so come and be with us Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. Now, uh, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, here's what we learned today that just still boggles my imagination. The God that we serve delights more in meeting our needs than he does in any way we might be useful to him. And he says very clearly, this is not about your working for me. This is about my work for you. And all of that is symbolized in my raising my hands over you and praying for you, pronouncing this benediction, this good word of God's. This is the promise of God that you should feed your souls on this week as you, as you work and as you rest and as you rejoice around the table with your family. So receive then this benediction. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.